Welcome to the 11th instalment of Guido Talks. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you don't have to look at us in our dreadful lockdown hair. You can actually go onto any of your favourite podcast platforms and listen to this as an audio podcast as well. My name's Tom Harwood, and once again, I'm joined by the founder and editor of Guido Forks, Paul Staines, along with reporter Christian Calgi. Uh, thank you for joining us. In fact, today you might notice our backgrounds are a little bit different. We're trying something slightly new. We are in our socially distanced office in the heart of Westminster. Uh, so we're more able now to get out and about, picking up our stories all back to work safely. So, um, my favourite piece of news this week, and I think probably everyone in this office's favourite piece of news this week came on Thursday evening. Um, And it was the accumulation of a lot of years of campaigning from this website in a very satisfying way. Um, I wonder if, Paul, you could explain what this story is. Well, as you said, late on Thursday night, I got a text message from Downing Street Sources, as they're known, and it said, it began, you win. And I thought, what's this? And there was a long explanation that as of the autumn, um, Downing Street will be televising the afternoon briefings, which are to lobby journalists and ourselves, because we're not members of the lobby. And for years, I've seen the lobby system where the journalists hunt as a pack and get the line out that they want to get out. Uh, They mediate the line. Instead of us hearing the question and getting the answer and the viewers seeing for ourselves, the lobby mediates it and they put their own interpretation there. So rather than getting a second-hand version of the Tory through the filter of the lobby journalist's personal um, take on matters, we will now be able to see the answer for ourselves. This happens all over the world. It's not something that's unusual. It's not something that's exclusive to America that we see um, the press briefings from the White House regularly. Uh, it's something that the lobby has resisted for a long time. And I think the reason they've resisted it is a little bit of the magic goes. And they don't want us to realise that half the time they're just taking dictation. And, uh, you know, um, using their shorthand skills to report what um, they've been told. I think the big difference this will make is that the government will be able to directly reach... Uh, voters in a way that they've tried to do with social media. We had Boris's PMQs, you know, where he had questions on Facebook to people. To be honest, uh, journalists do know their subject and do have a better take for what the next story is going to be. So it's useful to have professionals asking the question. And now we can get the listen and see the answers ourselves without having to um, put up with the individual journalists doing their own unique interpretation. And it's sometimes noticeable that two journalists hearing the same answer will report it completely different. Now we'll be able to judge for ourselves. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting and interesting and good change. And it's something that we have been very vocally campaigning for for a very long time. So it's very, very satisfying. But also it's quite interesting seeing some of the people more resistant to change, more resistant to progress within the lobby system, saying that this is somehow, or alleging that this is somehow a power grab from the government, which I just find hilarious. Because of course, um, it wasn't so long ago that across the pond in the United States, um, when the Trump administration started, uh, well, stopped doing the press briefings, all the journalists over there were saying, 
saying that's a power grab and not having televised press briefings is uh, somehow an, an, an evil or fascistic thing to do. And, and on this side of the pond, it's completely reversed. So I think very quickly, we're going to see a lot of that uh, resistance that was there melt away. We've already seen it with certain journalists who were incredibly rude to some members of uh, our staff uh, when we've been along to these briefings before and agitated for them to uh, be broadcast out to people rather than through the filter of the journalist's pens. Um, and this is uh, such a, it, it's, it's one of those moments where, you know, something so obviously should have happened. Once it has happened, I think there'll be very, very few people agitating for it to go back to the way it was. Okay, well, <laughs> unless you want to add anything there, Calgary, about your experiences uh, in, the, uh, in the room. I think it's quite hilarious to see some of these Damascene conversions by uh, senior uh, members of the lobby uh, who are now, uh, a couple of them, supporting the move. I think we've had Tom Newton Dunn uh, particularly saying that it's a, a good move and I don't um, particularly remember any members of the lobby publicly coming forward back in January and February when we were attempting to shake things up and, and live streaming via our Twitter account, but no grudges held. I'm always uh, happy to see a convert. But I, I, you know, was quite shocked by it because um, the soundings we'd, you know, I'd had was that, um, you know, the, the Prime Minister's spokesman wasn't really keen on the idea um but uh, it's a it's a great victory and all those um ranting and raving lobby journalists uh, who were attacking me earlier in the year as i went into number nine downing street and and live tweeted um i think uh, are finally going to realize that um guido were very much on the right side of history with this uh, with this argument and this change there's always an opportunity for tom newton dunn to switch sides now he's on the radio uh, he's a, uh, an accomplished broadcaster, I suppose, and Dan Street have said they do want to get a broadcaster. He will be a political appointee, and he could um, he could switch sides and become the uh, prime minister's spokesman. I mean, Perhaps uh, in a similar vein, Ross Kempsell might be uh, might be heading straight back to Dan. Ross can't go back; he's only just left. <laughs> the one man revolving door of. Uh... <laughs> Oh no, it is quite fun speculating as to who's going to get that job. I think we were going to write a piece about it, and then we realised we're really fishing in the dark, because I don't think even Downing Street know at this point who they want to do. No, although they have seemingly ruled out Richard Maidley. It's the one, <laughs> for some reason, is the, was the name specifically brought up in today's lobby briefing. Also, a lot of the senior journalists are on, you know, serious money, and uh, it's going to be a bit odd having a spokesman who's paid twice as much as the Prime Minister, possibly. So... Uh, who are they going to recruit is going to be fascinating because you have to be able to think on your feet and it's not it's not going to be an easy job to face up to the lobby's finest in their um, mm. most ferocious mode when you've got to make the government's it, case it's also going to be very interesting because if you sit through the normal lobby briefing um, it's not immediately um, something you'd think of as, as a great candidate for TV because the spokesperson has to choose every word incredibly carefully um, so things aren't misinterpreted and things aren't given um, uh, in falsehood. And it's quite stuttery and slow. So, yeah, it's going to be... Uh, you're going to have to have a, a heck of a 
skill set in order to uh, pull pull it off really i'm hoping there are going to be proper presentations as well i'm just remembering back to when sean spicer was the press secretary in the white house and and had all these photos of crowd sizes and was sort of alleging that <laughs> donald trump's inauguration was the most watched thing and of course over the last four years in the u.s it's such a demanding job that there have been so many different people doing it you started out with sean spicer you had sarah huckabee sanders you had um whoever the woman is doing it now i mean clearly it's very demanding and sometimes can be the source of great entertainment as well as um, as well as information. And of course, um, just looking at it from a sort of cultural side, at the moment there are laws preventing the use of footage from the House of Commons in comedy shows, for example. Whereas footage from um, this sort of press briefing um, would be, uh, I think, far more disseminated and can really shine a light through um, cultural avenues that don't normally see what's going on in politics. So I think it's quite an exciting uh, step forward. It could be a complete turn-off. I think towards the end of all the coronavirus briefings, we were getting quite bored with Peston's uh, five-minute monologues of questions. And there are a lot of egos in the lobby, a lot of very thin-skinned egos. So I think there's going to be a... Uh, some grandstanding, particularly for the broadcast journalists. I mean, if Jon Snow's back in there, he'll be campaigning for whatever his hobby horse is. Um, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people who are afraid of taking the limelight in the lobby. So it mm. could be the worst television you could imagine. Uh, and as somebody's been to a lot of political press conferences, they're not always that interesting. So I think edited highlights are going to be few and far between. <laughs> Well, moving on from what was probably the most consequential for us story of the week, there was actually another story this week that was incredibly consequential with regard to geopolitics and something that was really quite bold and big from this government. And that was the offer to those British national overseas passport holders and their dependents in Hong Kong, 2.9 million of them, to be able to escape the encroaching communist tyranny that's, uh, that's moving in to that city. Paul, can you explain a little bit more about this story for those who haven't been following? Well, uh, th the idea of giving um, the uh, British nationals overseas full uh, visa rights has been around since before 1997, when um, the treaty, the 50 years, came to an end and the handover was going to be in play. Uh, I think the Adam Smith Institute, as long as I can remember, has always suggested that having a lot of entrepreneurial reasonably wealthy Hong Kongers come to Britain would be a, a net plus. Uh, and uh, I think Pretty was keen on it. I think um, Boris saw the moral case. And uh, I, my understanding is there was um, not unanimity in Cabinet when it was proposed, but it has been driven through. And as a result, I don't, I don't envisage three million Hong Kongers coming. Uh, it doesn't, the, the offer isn't to all Hong Kong citizens, it's to uh, people born before 1997. And to be honest, a lot of them would rather stay in the region and would prefer to go to Taiwan. But if 100,000 Hong Kongers should come over here and maybe go to one of our soon-to-be-open free ports and recreate Hong Kong, wherever it is in the country, it will be a fantastic uh, boost to us. I've been really interested in um, an idea proposed by Sam Bowman, who is uh, still, I think, on the advisory board of the ASI, although his day job is now with a different think tank. And he's been proposing that we can take an area of the UK that's, I think, four by four square miles, um, which really is not 
big compared to the, the size of the UK. And perhaps in one of these new freeports in a place that's sort of post-industrial, that's coastal, um, that needs regeneration, and give it different planning laws than the rest of the country, and allow these skyscrapers to zoom up, providing uh, housing not just for Hong Kongers that come over to the UK, but also young people in the UK who are in need of housing here as well. And so building that new sort of counterweight to London um, with, with enormous new skyscrapers and economic opportunity um, is a really, really exciting prospect for me. Now, of course, the government hasn't committed to this, but it's an idea that's being discussed, and I'd love to see it progress more. I love that your uh, idea involves sending three million Hong Kongers to Clacton or something like that. I'm sure they'd fit in really well before this regeneration went ahead. No, it's got to be further north. Clacton, I think, is a bit too kind of clay-based. All the Thames estuary, like I was looking at, the, I got really interested in this idea, right? And I was looking at the sort of um, soil types, not just soil types, but sort of the geology of the UK, because of course New York is brilliant for skyscrapers because it's built on hard rock. London is less good because it's built on clay. But actually, a lot of the northeast has really good. Um, uh, groundwork for this sort of stuff. So somewhere like Redcar, um, where of course you're not going to be tearing down any uh, green fields or trees, you've got a lot of sort of post-industrial land there, it could be a really exciting um, regeneration prospect. It's my favourite section of our weekly podcast where we talk about the soil types of various <laughs> parts of the UK. Yeah, no, because it takes me back to um, geography. Um, <laughs> solid ground. Dis disclaimer: I'm I'm not a geologist, although geology rocks. Um, that's your that's your dad joke for the week. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's sort of linked tangentially to this whole. Um, BNO offer and quite strong uh, stance that this government is taking uh, against the Communist Party of China um, is also the idea that is being floated a lot, particularly this week, that the government is going to row back from its sort of half committal over uh, the Chinese company Huawei being significantly involved in constructing the 5G network of the United Kingdom. Now, I spoke to a few people who are close to government, and they I, I can't find one person who thinks that the plan as it was, it was originally constituted will be moving on um, in that same way. There's going to be some sort of change. Now, obviously, that's not going to come immediately. And it's almost fortunate that the coronavirus crisis has bought some time here because a lot of the reason why Huawei was chosen in the first place is because uh, a lot of Western companies really were caught with their trousers down, didn't really have the time, um, couldn't construct something in the speed that was needed. But perhaps we're going to see um, a greater pluralism with regard to our telecom infrastructure going forward. And so that's something that's come off the back, not only of the Chinese Communist Party government's um, cover up over coronavirus right at the beginning of the year, but also their almost annexation of Hong Kong that's going on right now. So whilst horrible things are happening in that part of the world, the reaction from this part of the world, and specifically the reaction from Britain, has, in my view, been quite encouraging. But moving on from foreign policy, we have had a significant um, resignation uh, at the start of this week. I think it was on Saturday, actually. But, um, Calgi, I think you reported this. Can you tell us more about Mark Sedwell? Yeah, well, uh, Mark Sedwell is, is gone. Uh, it has 
left number 10. I, I think it actually happened uh, on Sunday afternoon. He was uh, expected to resign uh, on Monday, uh, but I think Sebastian Payne of the Financial Times brought forward a, a premature resignation after uh, an article in the, uh, that morning uh, and was replaced by uh, David Frost, uh, who I accidentally uh, called Sir David Frost earlier in the week. Uh, apparently he's not yet had that honour. Um, uh, and he's uh, obviously uh, moved over from the Europe advisor and uh, uh, well, I'm just to hold you there, I, David Frost is still the chief Brexit negotiator, but he is going to be taking on the security uh, advisor element of Mark Settle's role. So there is still a recruitment process for mm. um, the next person who's taking on all of the other responsibilities. And they're going to be taking um, someone who has already been a very senior civil servant for that role. Mm. Um, but obviously one person wasn't very happy with the... Uh with the move, uh, Tom. Oh, yes, no, of course. This was, this was um, your great idol, Calgi, uh, Theresa May, who, um, who when, when there was an urgent question being answered by the consummate parliamentary performer Michael Gove in the House of Commons, a surprising contribution, perhaps, was made by Theresa May, who stood up and gave one of the most emotional, forceful um, speeches of her entire career over something that you wouldn't have thought she felt particularly passionately about. Now, we had a little bit of um, inside information, um, and it was one of our most read stories this week, actually, um, as to the reason why Theresa May was feeling particularly aggrieved that day and perhaps particularly emotional and wanting to send a strong message and stand up and um, and be strong on that case. And that's because she, um, we're told, was furious that morning um, with regard to a completely different matter uh, of a CNN report about Donald Trump's international phone calls. Um, and Theresa May, the British Prime Minister then, was specifically cited as being bullied by Donald Trump, Donald Trump saying she was weak on Brexit, saying a lot of things that no doubt um, some people watching this will probably agree with, um, but still Theresa May felt um, particularly aggrieved and hurt by that article. So I think uh, it's not too far a stretch to say she was looking to move the story on and, and suffice to say by the end of that day when you typed in Theresa May you no longer got weak bullied you got fiery strong stands up to government and I think in terms of PR uh, terms alone uh, she she sort of um, salvaged her reputation that day. It's amazing that she's managed to find a competent comm strategy uh, it's, only, it's only come about three years too late for her um, but she did, I thought she was uh, very good. Um, I don't know David Frost's skill set, so I wouldn't um, have gone in so hard uh, on the appointment. But yeah, we've still, still got a, uh, a new cabinet secretary. Um, but uh, one might hope that given we've now cleared the uh, decade-long constitutional um you know, headaches that we've seen, the, the cabinet secretary, uh, the next cabinet secretary might um, have a slightly uh, easier role over the next few years. That's certainly true. And one of the reasons why is because the um, Brexit issue is being put to bed and the people that were agitating for a second referendum were completely um, defeated 
But out of the embers of their second referendum campaign, something new has sprung up. And crucially, it appears to have clung on to all of the data that has been collected over the last four years since the referendum. Now, Paul, can you tell us a little bit more about this latest iteration, this fresh front for the same old Remainers? Well, the uh, new campaign, or the new campaign name, is uh, Democracy Unleashed. And it's from the same organisational embers as, do you remember, Stronger In during the referendum in 2016? Then it became um, Open Britain, post that. Then it became uh, People's Vote. Uh, have I missed anything? And now it's called Democracy Unleashed. And it's fighting the elite and the plutocrats. And it's uh, really a wholly owned subsidiary of Roland Rudd, the uber lobbyist who uh, lobbies on behalf of a lot of the big FTSE 100 companies. He lives in a £25 million house and um, he controls this campaign. And as far as I can see, it's just an absolute audacious cheek of him to uh, be running on an anti-elite platform. What I think he's aiming for is probably um, a centrist or a proportional representation type campaign. Uh, for people complaining for democratic reform, it's noticeable that it is a completely undemocratic organisation. We don't know how it's funded, who put the money up, its governance structures, or anything like that. We do know that it's got 500,000 um, contacts uh, from all the other campaigns that it's people are involved in. I imagine a lot of people who are getting emails are probably wondering, uh, is there anywhere to go with this? What is it all about? And unless it has the democratic authenticity I can't really see it being much more successful than a AstroTurf campaign. Uh, I, it sounds a bit Lib Dem, and you know the Lib Dems are already struggling, so why would they want uh, another campaign? There is um, a, a Lib Dem campaign called Unlock Democracy. So I, I don't really, really see that there's a market for whatever, whatever Rudd wants to do with this. I suppose he's got the money, and he's got the... Um, the vehicle. So he thought, I might as well use it. Uh, if Starmer hadn't been elected to the Labour Party and it was still in left-wing hands, I could see a purpose. But you know, Starmer is taking um, the Labour Party in a centrist direction. So I don't really see what mileage this campaign will have. And certainly it's, it's annoyed quite a few people who were in um, the original campaign um, uh, when it was... People's Vote. Um, there are lots of people who are on the board of People's Vote, people like uh, James, James McGrory, um, Tom Baldwin, I think, who were forced out by Roland Rudd. Um, and I've spoken to some of the um, lower level people from that campaign who are um, almost hoping that this new campaign of Roland Rudd fails. So much is the animosity towards, um, towards his boardroom coup that was carried out in November last year that we covered extensively on the site. Um, Calgary, I think you, you sort of ran down to try and find the people who'd scarpered from the office or something during that time? Yeah, it was, it was, it was great fun. I think we were told that um, the, uh, the Remain uh, staffers who had, who had sort of launched this people's coup against Rudd uh, were hiding out in a cafe in Pimlico and I spent uh, about half an hour going all around Pimlico trying to 
trying to find them uh, to no avail, unfortunately. Um, yeah, um, but uh, they're all off uh, doing various things. I'm just trying to remember, is, uh, is this the same new Remain campaign that we reported about a week ago have actually moved to leave country? They, they'd left... Uh, They'd, they'd left Westminster and gone up to uh, Leicester. Um, uh, Off the top of my head, I think there have been a number of changes on their company's house um, page. Mm. Like there, there are a number of different... It's quite confusing because there are a number of different organisations behind this campaign. So the front piece is called uh, Unlock Dem or Democracy Un Unleashed. Um, and yet you go into the about terms on their website and it says Democracy Unleashed is a campaign of Open Britain and then Open Britain's mm. contact details are there and it's all very sort of slimy in terms of who's actually in charge and of course there's no um, openness, no actual contact uh, information on their websites apart from being able to unsubscribe from the email which they have to provide by law so it's not like they're being open at all as to what this campaign is about, who's behind it or what it's for. Um, but I think that's probably enough time talking about a dead in the water campaign that should have closed down a very long time ago. Let's not forget the referendum finished more than four years ago. And yet here we are still talking about it. Um, so, so let's go back to grounds and let's go local. Um, because, Paul, we ran a story about, well, we ran several stories this week about the goings on in Leicester. Um, one of which was... Um, Quite a sad story, actually. I don't know if you can um, tell us all about that. Well, in Leicester, there has been, as we all know, a, a resurgence of the virus, and it is being blamed on the conditions of work of people in the garment trade. Leicester's famously uh, got, has for decades, going back um, to when uh, Indian immigrants came over and started working in the mills, had a active garment trade. Now, Boohoo produced a lot of their goods, you know, the cheap, cheap rags that you see heavily advertised. Uh, their uh, other brand names are Pretty Little Girl, Pretty Little Thing, is it? And uh, Nasty Girl. Uh, they have worked reasonably, there was a lot of demand for their products because it's mail order and they're heavily advertised. So they worked reasonably consistently through the lockdown period. And there's been a lot of complaints that people who were sick were insisted on coming into work. They insisted on coming to work. The conditions weren't very adequate. Protection and distancing wasn't in place. And it turns out that there has been some suggestion that it's modern slavery because in January of this year, Andrew Bridgen, who is the neighbouring MP in neighbouring constituency, uh, asked a question in the Houses of Parliament about. The conditions and ask the business secretary to look into uh, whether there are uh, instances of modern slavery. And there's some suggestion that um, people are being paid a pittance, you know, a couple of pounds an hour, uh, and there's been a lot of exploitation. Uh, not quite sure where this is going, but given it sort of was flagged before even the pandemic took hold, I think that's something that's worth serious investigation and. Uh, and, and look into. And there's also, I'm not quite clear about this, also some suggestion that it's linked to a lot of corruption in the local political machine. And whose home turf is this? Keith Faz. Uh, and uh, there is some suggestion that the, the 
factory owners are in league with the local politicians and they, that's why they've got away with a lot of this. We'll see what comes out of it. I don't think it's going to come out um, very well for some people. No, and well, good on um, Andrew Bridgen for raising this all those months ago because it's really only hit the press now and only really because of coronavirus. So um, I think he's really to be commended there. But of course, Leicester wasn't only in the news because of this factory and the conditions there. It was also um, in the news because there was a bit of tension between the uh, city mayor and the government. And originally, when the government said, we're going to have to put you back into lockdown, the city mayor was resistant to this. Um, And we'd been sort of vaguely aware that that he'd hit the local press before and um, ran a story, actually, of his remarkable consistency. Um, Because this was a mayor and a man who had broken lockdown twice that has been officially reported. We've got some inclination it might have been more than that. Um, And so, of course, he'd be resistant uh, of lockdown coming in again because he didn't really abide by the last one. Um, So this Labour mayor, I suppose, is um, not to be commended for his cooperation because that's almost non-existent. He's to be commended for his consistency. Um, and, And so that's at least something. But no, I think that's probably enough time talking about um, local politics in Leicester, because of course we've got a story about <laughs> local politics in Enfield. Um, so, Kelgi, what's going on in Enfield? Yeah, uh, Enfield uh, Council um, facing uh, sort of financial Armageddon off the back of uh, lockdown, like most local authorities, uh, thought it, uh, it was a good time this week to award themselves Uh, some pretty large pay rises of up to 7,608 quid. Um, The uh, so-called cash-strapped council uh, voted uh, this week uh, to approve uh, the amendment to the special responsibility allowances, uh, Labour entirely off the back of of Labour votes, uh, with only two Labour councillors uh, abstaining on that vote uh, to a total of uh, thirty six grand, and uh, what you know, it's it's not surprising at all that we've seen uh, the leader of the council and the um, financial minister or, or whatever they, they're called um, complaining about um, the tough time the council finances are facing at the moment. Uh, before going out and proposing this uh, pay rise, which is not just bad politics, it's it's you know appalling um, handling of finances. The government is uh, slamming in a lot of cash, billions and billions, into local councils to help them cope with the effects of the uh, pandemic. And uh, I saw that the Taxpayers Alliance put out something saying, at the very least, this should be ring fenced for you know, new and necessary spending, not to give um, the, you know, senior senior councillors a £7,600 pay rise. I mean, around the world, you've seen politicians set an example by taking a pay cut. Uh, they should really be ashamed of themselves in, uh, in Enfield. Uh, and I hope they uh, pay the price of the ballot box for this time. Mm. We actually, it's not the first story about Enfield we've, we've run during lockdown, because I was reminded today that uh, about a month ago um, we had a story that uh, Labour had also um, basically sent an email round going councillors are um, 
able to get tested, make sure you go out and get tested before key workers take up all the coronavirus tests. Um, and that was sent by uh, the official sort of, you know, Labour, local Labour whip. Um, so, you know, pay rises and nicking the, the tests ahead of key workers. They've really uh, showered themselves in glory uh, during this pandemic. That's remarkable. Well, let's take a step away from the Labour Party now and step towards um, an even further left organisation um, called Momentum. And we reported this week on their internal elections. Yes, the faction has factions within that faction um, in order to try and push the Labour Party, which really itself is a faction of politics, um, in a further left direction. And the um, ironically named uh, Momentum Renewal slate in that election, which is actually the old people that were running it. So Renewal is the sort of Landsmanite old faction. We're up against Forward Momentum, which are the people that think Momentum itself isn't internally democratic enough, and were upset about the um, nomination procedure, for example, um, with regard to the uh, leadership election within Labour. Um, now, for um, Momentum Renewal, the sort of Landsmanite faction, was completely wiped out. Every single elected seat went to a Forward Momentum candidate, and these are the further left um, people within Momentum. So now that um, organising committee within Momentum is completely controlled, um, or at least I think it's 20 out of 24 spaces are now controlled by this even further left faction. So um, now the question is, how much influence does Momentum actually have over the Labour Party now that sort of their poster girl Rebecca Long-Bailey is out of the shadow cabinet? They might well be sort of um, just shouting at each other and, and in many ways it's quite an entertaining organisation to sort of keep the hard left um, busy trying to run elections against each other to run an organisation that doesn't really count all that much with regard to real Labour politics now. It's sort of, it, it, it's, it's, uh... It's become a, a complete irrelevance, but I've just started keeping an eye on it for the for the many laughs. I think one of my favourite articles during lockdown was when uh, Momentum split and then the new faction called for unity. Um, it was it was uh, very Monty Python esque, um, but you know it's now just a sort of crash for Trotsky, uh, Trotsky uh, and, and Marxists to play politics with absolutely no consequences and uh, I think you know that's a very good uh, state of affairs for British politics. Yeah fair enough it's a grown-up NUS you know once you get too old to be a student i.e you're sort of 40 years old because of course there are sort of 35 year olds running around the NUS still um, it's nice for them to have something to do now too um, but um, we're sort of um, coming to the end of our allotted time slot for Guido Talks now so I think we'll just round off on a nice fun story that we uh, ran this week which is that Tory MPs seem to be being a bit more light-hearted now um, towards the whole Dominic Cummings saga, which was obviously um, taking up a lot of their post bags only a couple of months ago. Calgi, what happened here? Uh, yes, uh, the local MP, um, Deanna Davison, uh, the MP uh, for Bishop Auckland, which contains uh, Barnard Castle in it, uh, had a wonderful day out meeting constituents and doing her duties and uh, popped along to the Specsavers in Barnard Castle uh, for, a, for a, a cheeky photo dig at uh, Dominic Cummings' infamous uh, eyesight test trip. Uh, it's uh, good to see the uh, spectators in, in the town is, is now open and uh, 
you don't need to drive uh, 20 miles as, a, as an alternative to uh, checking everything's working. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for sticking with us throughout this episode of Guido Talks. Uh, stay safe. Enjoy the pubs and the hairdressers today. Um, and, and we'll see you next week. Thanks wow. for listening.